0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the last segment of the annual wrap-up for 2021. We're going to talk about a topic which is, there's no more important topic before us. Um, it's a topic that is kind of like the the backbone of everything we enjoy and our many blessings and the blessings of liberty, and I'm delighted to welcome back John Titus, who has agreed uh as a professional attorney has agreed to now present to us a theme called sovereignty. So John, welcome to the Saliri Report. Thank you for doing another outstanding annual wrap up or another outstanding wrap up. You've done the Going Direct Reset, you've done CBDC, and now you've taken on the core of everything. This is the real skeleton of the whole financial and governance system. So tell us about sovereignty.
1: Uh, Well, you know, CBDC and going direct, you know, I'm familiar familiar with those. I needed to do a lot of research. Sovereignty, I've been working on for a very long time. So it's right in my wheelhouse. I sort of got into this as soon as uh, the reason I created a YouTube channel was that I saw that sovereignty was being threatened, that national sovereignty of the U.S. was headed for a collision course with the criminal bankers who had really taken control of the system. Um, and that's really what kind of drove me. So I've am trying to i tr- tried to compress all this into one thing, but people don't realize, I think a lot of times, you tend to assume that everything's okay and it's always been that way and it's always going to be right. that way. And there's a lot of stuff you take for granted. Um, and when you boil it down and you look into, you know, what is really propping up our system, it really comes down to the rule of law and the legal institutions we have. And that just affects everything. And without the rule of law and without law enforcement, um, everything else topples. And I think that that's going to come across in this presentation.
0: Well, one of the things I used to always say is, you know, the stock, if the stock market is trading at a multiple of 10 or 20, that multiple is only there if there's the rule of law. If the rule of law goes away, it's trading at one or less. Right? There's no leverage.
1: Valuations right. are can't be done without law, right? Right, and they can't be enforced without the rule of law. You know, we'll, we'll 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 see that as we get into it.
0: Well, I can I can create a market price for food. In other words, people are going to want food whether there's law or not, and they'll bargain and create prices for it. But if you take anything that's based on a on a trans, on a on a contract, you know, a bond or a stock. It's yep. meaningless. It's worthless without the rule of law. So right. the entire That's... financial system basically grinds to a halt back to, you know, what kind of prices people can create in their own intimate lives, including barter. So, you know, you're back, you're back to, to rocks and sticks and caves without the rule of law.
1: Right. And even barter, you sort of need the enforcement right. of contractual relations you know it comes right. down to how are you going to enforce the laws and how are you going to resolve disputes right in a way that's fair right you now there's a, there's a lot that goes into this it's there's a lot in sovereignty it's really the whole ball of wax but in what our experience in the US i think as you'll see here really comes down to there's there's some elements of sovereignty that have been bargained away or handed away and it's costing us big time
0: so you describe three kinds of sovereignty. Why don't you dive in and, and walk us through them?
1: Yeah, well, let me, um, let me say up front that um, the, the, what really drives this discussion and uh, sovereignty is that there really are two key, key points to look at in American history. One is the American Revolution. That was obviously a very defining moment for sovereignty. It's very helpful to look at it in understanding sovereignty. And the other is the 2008 bailout. You know, the more I look at that event, the more I'm like, "Wow, that really did have a major impact on sovereignty." Um, so I want to I want to get into this uh, with with a, just a clip um, from a few years ago. Let's see if you can guess where the clip is from, and just play this clip to sort of set the table for what was going on you know why i'm saying that the 2008 bailout was was such a pivotal event because i'm not the only person who saw that there are other people who saw the same thing at the same time so let me run this clip to sort of kick off the whole discussion okay you see that yep okay let's hit it
0: think of it as the financialization of the economy and the speculative activity in real estate Substituting
2: other areas of growth. He replaced manufacturing with uh, gambling, essentially. And that's a big change. And it set off a vicious cycle. It, it's reversing American history.
0: We're going back to a, a, a monarchy slash corporate statism, is really what it is. It's not left and right anymore. It's the individual versus the corporate state.
1: It's the individual versus the corporate state. Ban is that right. not the truth? Any right. idea where that clip came from? No. Yeah, that clip is from my film, Bailout, which, ah, which came out uh, right. in, in 2008. That was the I first remember. guy. Was, was Chris Whalen. Um, he's mm-hmm. an invest, he's a bank analyst at in, uh, Institutional, not, uh, no, it's Research Analytics. And then it's that guy, obviously, is Noam Chomsky. And they're both saying, hey, you know, these bailouts, what's gone on and what's led up to these bailouts is the financialization of the economy. And it's reversed American history. And we're going to see that exact same thing. In fact, right. in a lot of ways, the 2008 bailout, when you look at it, it has really, uh, in a lot of ways, it has reversed the American Revolution um, in a way yes. that, is, that is that is quite astonishing. Well,
0: I would say it's the financial coup and the bailouts combined, because to me, yes. the bailouts consolidated and made the, you know, basically, you got away with that first four to eight trillion dollars of missing money, you locked it in and then you kept going.
1: Right, and and I will freely concede that when the coup d'etat in this country occurred is open to question. But what I'm going to show you here is that it was likely, I think, right before the bailouts, but certainly it preceded the 2008 TARP bailout. And, And I'll just leave it at that for now and get into it. Earlier, though, you had asked me about uh, the two types of sovereignty, and I'll just get into it um, and just tell you right now. It's ex- extrinsic and intrinsic sovereignty, extrinsic being other countries, intrinsic being the U.S. When I first saw that, I was inclined to think, you know, intrinsic so- extrinsic sovereignty is to prevent the, the, your country from being murdered by another country. Uh, right. Intrinsic sovereignty is to prevent the country from committing suicide. But the more I look <laughs> at it, I'm like, well, it's really to prevent the murder from outside and the murder from inside which is why the oath when people take an oath to uphold the constitution right. it's to defend the country against all enemies foreign and domestic so the founders knew full well that we had domestic enemies um right. and so that's why i say it's really sovereignty is a defense mechanism but but there are there are two different forms intrinsic and extrinsic so i want to i'll get into that right now let me um get back to this presentation here. So here we have sovereignty, extrinsic, um, and intrinsic. So let's just just cover those basically. Extrinsic sovereignty, that derives from the Treaty of Westphalia um, back in the 1600s. The Treaty of Westphalia is a lot like um, the Magna Carta. You know, nobody really knows what it said, but they know that the rule of law came out of Magna Carta. And likewise, out of Westphalia, we we got a couple of principles that really are non-controversial now. They're so uh, well-worn and well-understood. So
0: it's interesting. I started to write, when they started to do the economic sanctions, I started to write about the use of mercenaries and the compromising of the Treaty of Westphalia. So so you'd be surprised how many of the long-time subscribers have heard about the Treaty of Westphalia. Yeah. I think it's very important.
1: It's hugely important. And the two concepts right. we'll see here, uh, like I said, they're so important that they're almost non-controversial, but they are, um, number one, each country is absolutely sovereign um, within her territorial boundaries, um, and number two, other countries should not interfere with a country's internal affairs, unless the other country is the U.S. and the country's internal affairs is Ukraine, that's okay. But those that's the two basic notions of sovereignty, you know.
0: So this was why the, remember the big fight over renditions? This is why the renditions were such yeah. a shocking and important issue.
1: Yes, yes, yeah. and we'll we'll see the, the renditions um, appear in, in the Declaration of Independence, um, as as do any number of crimes by King George III, and we'll, we'll touch on those briefly. Right. But to, but to get back to sovereignty, so that's e- extrinsic sovereignty. It's sovereignty within your borders, um, and then other countries not being able to interfere from outside. That's extrinsic sovereignty. That's not particularly controversial. The much more interesting topic here is intrinsic sovereignty. So let's go to that. Intrinsic sovereignty boils down to who rules, right? Who is going to be the boss? And there are basically, you know, two. there's two poles in who rules. There are two different extremes. The one is sort of the Hobbesian it's a single person with supreme authority over everybody else, that person being essentially the law, whatever that person says goes. That would be a, a tyrant or a dictator. And then the other, the other direction, the other poll is, you know, you have authority, but it's limited and it's distributed among multiple people in government. And that was an important notion that was really developed um, by John Locke and really adopted by the colonists. Um, there is, however, what I call the British contradiction, because while Great Britain in the 18th century would have said, yes, we are a nation uh, under the rule of law, number one, and really a nation of limited of limited uh, internal sovereignty, number two, th- there, there was a contradiction that I want to bring up here, because it's very important. It comes from William Blackstone, um, who in 1765 wrote commentaries on the laws of England, that was an English legal treatise. It was the first legal treatise ever written, where he attempts to summarize the law, the sum of all case law at the time. And he says, it's it's in four volumes, in the second volume, I think it's chapter 17, he says, that the king can do no wrong is a necessary and fundamental principle of the English Constitution. Um, and that's problematic because if the king can do no wrong, then that means he can't break the law, which is obviously is is somewhat problematic. Now, Blackstone did not meet. By the way, my I just got an, another message. My internet connection's unstable. But Blackstone did not mean that the king is infallible. Blackstone did not mean that the king um, is perfect. What he means is is a legal matter. the The king. You could start your legal starting point should be the king didn't do it. Basically. It right. might be inadvertence, it might be omission, it might be misinformation, it might have been somebody else, but it wasn't the king. So get yeah, that to your is, head.
0: The king is never liable.
1: The king is never liable. Right. Obviously, that did not sit well with uh, the American colonies. And their response was, oh yeah, he king can't do anything wrong. Well, here we they actually set forth any number of crimes by King George III in the Declaration of Independence. I want to touch on one because it's so heinous, I was almost shocked me when I went back and reread the declaration and saw this: uh, the king has constrained our fellow citizens, taken captive on the high seas, to bear arm against bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hand. So either you know you're going to kill this guy or you're going to kill yourself. That was that was one of the things he did. So it really gets to the point that um, the king could do wrong. And so the colonists were very big on the rule of law. And this thus enters the real rule of law coming in from the colonies. And it's basically framed um, from, from it's John Adams who really sort of drafted it. The, the tightest and most succinct summation of it was in the Massachusetts Constitution. We are a nation of laws not of men really and that that really simplifies the issue because he's saying there when it comes to governance you have two choices you can either be ruled by men like king george the third or you can have a national laws that law would be the supreme authority and everybody including someone like king george the third including our leaders is going to answer to the rule of law the law is supreme even over the government um the other requirements, there's a few things that that come sort of bound up and packaged with the rule of law. Um, it's un- it has to be unambiguous, it has to be publicized. It's no good if it's secret. We can't have we're not operating a star chamber here. That's King George the Third. It's got to be clear. Um, you can't say, well, you know, bad guys are going to jail. You know that 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 leaves that's a, that sort of sneaks back into the rule of man. The law has got to be clear on its face. The law has to be applied equally over both people and time. So everybody's got to be bound under the law. And it's, it's got to apply, you have to get the, the, the same input has to give you the same output. And that's why I say over time, because that means legal precedent is important. You can't have two different outcomes based on the same inputs, the same fact pattern has got to give you the same result no matter when, no matter who. Another a very important point in the declaration is the law must be consented to by the people. Um, A law that the people do not consent to is per se invalid. That was kind of a radical notion, although another one that was developed by John Locke. And then finally, you know, a law not made according to these principles is void. It's no good. And so that really sort of summarizes
0: so in part what the, they're saying is law is not just something written and formal it's part of the culture too
1: yes it it, it it that without people and without consenting people it's it's a nullity right um it's it's constitutionally void on arrival any any law that's not so
0: passed what i always i always call the constitution a covenant and it's a yeah. spiritual and cultural covenant, not just a legal covenant.
1: Yep, that's exactly right. Um, it, it's a, it's a, and that that's an ancient notion too, that was developed even before Locke, um, that there was a social contract, that actually predates, right, um, that sort of the modern conception of the rule of law. That goes back a long way, but but the Declaration and the founders, with all the trouble they got from King George the <laughs> Third. They really, really got it right in the Declaration of Independence, um, and then they thought about these issues a lot, uh, given their experience. Uh, and so it really came down to the, the sovereign power in the U.S. is the law. It's not—we can't have this anymore. We can't have people who are above the law. That's, that's no good. That's, that's a fatal fatal mistake. Okay. So, continuing on, um, guns are money what is that all about um let me just tell you there are any number of sovereign powers um that are spelled out in the constitution um there's a lot there's more than you might you might think you know you get, you could i i went through the constitution and just sort of just, you know uh scroll, wrote down a few of them the the sovereign powers that you it was like wow there's a lot they talk about punishing members of congress uh, providing for a common defense, uh, entering into treaties—that's obviously something you know that a government can do and a nation can do. A person can't do it. Raising revenue, collecting taxes and duties—you know, borrowing money on U.S. credit is another one that I tend to slip my mind. Uh, regulating commerce uh, is a big one. Uh, resolving disputes—I mentioned. Coining and regulating money is a big one. Uh, punishing counterfeiters, obviously an extension of that. Um, setting up a post office. Um, standardizing weights and measures, issuing credit, uh, another big one providing for bankruptcies and naturalization, declaring and waging wars, raising armies, standing armies, granting reprieves. I mean, there's a lot, um, and then executing, uh, laws. And then the final one that that I, I saw or jotted down there was conducting jury trials. But out of all those powers, um, that you see in the Constitution, the sovereign powers, there's a few that stand above the others in terms of their importance. And I want to, it boils down to basically guns or money. Right. Um, is it is it force, the monopolization of violence essentially, or is it the ability to control money, to issue money? Um, and there was a long running before the Constitution, before the Declaration of Independence, or at the time of of the, of the American Revolution, There was a long-running debate over which was the more important, which of those two is more important. Um, And loosely speaking, it was a debate. Um, And on one side of the debate, you had uh, Machiavelli who said, men, steel, money, and bread are the sinews of war. But of these four, the first two, men and steel, meaning armies, the first two are more necessary than money and bread, because men in steel find money and bread, but money and bread do not find men in steel, <laughs> meaning the army can take the money, but the money may not be able to buy the army. Right. So that was Machiavelli, 1520. Uh, 300 years later, though, you had Thomas Jefferson coming in and saying banking establishments are more dangerous than standing armies. And he says that in a letter to John Taylor, a little bit you know some a few decades, three decades really after the Constitution was implemented. And so it's like, well, what has changed? What did Jefferson see that sort of, what's the real disagreement here? And so what, if you look at what has happened in between the time of Machiavelli and Jefferson, you know, Machiavelli was 1520. We go all the way to Jefferson in 1816. What happened in between? Well, Bank of England was created in 1694. And then Bank of North America was created in 1781. That's what's in between. Um, You have the central bank, of those two countries, and that's that's a big difference as we're going to see. But right out of the gate, though, you have to understand something about the Bank of North America. Yes, it was the nation's first first central bank. It was a bank of issue, meaning it, it could issue money. But there's more to it than just that. I didn't know this going in. To this, I was like, well, I didn't know that Bank of North America um, is a very special institution in the U.S. It's the first bank of issue in America. It's the first private bank in America, which I didn't know. The colonies didn't have banks, okay? Uh, So the money issuance in the Bank of England and the Bank of North America, money issuance up until the Bank of North America um, was not the same in England as it was in America because the Bank of England was basically a private bank and in, in America, in the colonies, the first five private bank doesn't come until 1781 with the Bank of North America. So there's, the money issuance was was way different as between the colonies and in Great Britain. In the colonies, right. money was issued by the states. And the states were issuing paper money. And so you, you could see some examples here of a paper money. It was issued as early as 1690 by Massachusetts. And if you look here... You zoom in I want to zoom into Massachusetts um, you can see that these monies they're they're issued in shillings so they're still using um, the did they, 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 nothing they're not using dollars early on um, so then I think you have Pennsylvania here in the middle a 15 shilling note and then on the right you have the three shilling note from New Jersey <laughs> to counterfeit his death but the, the states were issuing money themselves it wasn't, it wasn't private banks issuing the money. Then it was non-interest-bearing uh, money, and that's a big difference. That's a big difference. Right. Um, right. And the reason they weren't, they were having trouble with coins is that precious metal coins kept getting, you know, hoovered up. They kept getting exported back to London, um, and that was why they forced the colonies to use paper money. It was like, well, why the metal coins are going back to money? Why is that? And that has to do with the, the what was going on with the monetary system in Great Britain at the time where you had private banks issuing both paper money. So they're, they're issuing paper money too, but it's different in Great Britain. Because over in Great Britain, it's the private banks issuing IOU money, not states issuing notes. Big right. difference. And because of the paper money, because it's IOUs, they need the precious metal coins in Great Britain. settle the transactions right because if it's you know banks aren't going to take on each other's ious freely unless they're able to settle with each other and that was driving demand that was one of the things driving demand for the coins which which the banks were also issuing but they were precious metal coins and that's how banks settled with each other so you had a two-tiered monetary system in great britain where coins were settling the paper transactions and that was different way different the u.s the u.s had a single tier system where there was no need for settlement because the states in the form of paper were issuing real money um so you you saw as i said two kinds of paper money you had real money meaning it was permanent money being issued by the government it wasn't interest bearing it was real money that could settle transactions um per se and you didn't you actually didn't need money didn't need money to settle transactions because it was only real money floating around the colonies. And in in England, Great Britain, you had debt money being issued by banks, plural, I underline that s and banks plural, because it was it wasn't they weren't coming from the crown. It was the banks by that time had usurped the power to issue money in England. That process had started in the late 1700s. It actually started in the early early uh, 1600s. But, the, but by the late by the late 17th century, the banks had really taken over that power. And that was really what had led the real colonial conflict was, you see, and this is a quote from Alexander Del Mar, the, the, what really drove the, the, the revolution was selfish London merchants and bankers who influenced the government at this period would not permit the colonies to have their own monetary system. Meaning every time the colonies tried to issue their own money, you know, along would come King George at the behest of London merchants and shut the colonial money down. They wanted, instead of using the paper money, London wanted to rent out its basic money to the colonies and the colonies were not interested in that. Um, And so the first bank of issue in America is the Bank of North America. And the big mistake is, you know, after all of that, after you have the revolution, you have all these things go on where the U.S. finally breaks three, it's money... System prevails, but the very first thing they do in 1781 is they adopt the very monetary system that we revolted against in 1775, 1776. Right? <laughs> we fight a whole war against an empire and beat them, and then the, we turn right around and we say, you know what? We're going to give the we're going to give money issuing power to the Bank of of North America, and thus began the spiral of America toward all of the ills of the private issuance of money and the control of the monetary system by banks. And so can Alexander I,
0: Can let I me just show you add, one,
1: Okay. Yeah. You go. Let me show you one quote from Alexander Del Mar, because it's so good. He is so disgusted that the colonists did it, that they they hand over the money to a bank. He says never was a great historical event followed by a more feeble sequel meaning the revolution followed by handing the money over. In 1781, he says, in a word, they, the colonists, planted another revolution. And he says that in Money in America. Anyway, that's sort of the sum total of that in the colonies.
0: So one of the issues that is often not really thought about or written about, which to me is not only important, you know, in in the revolution and on, but goes all the way through and now is a major issue. And that is, who can create secret money? If you have the states issuing paper money, you don't begin to have the capacity to create and finance secret operations, covert operations. And if you look at the history of the United States, you're watching a history of more and more money being available to finance covert side and covert operations. And so, you know, there's a theme in here about who can afford the best intelligence and who can manipulate knowledge and intelligence. And as we move into a digital system, it's going to get more and more powerful and more and more important. But, the, you know, one of the reasons the bankers have always fought to, to take the, the central banks and the banks private is so they can finance secret operations.
1: That's, that's exactly right. The sunshine right. is just one of the most important features right. of having public issuance of money. Right. Is it is that you have, we the people have control over that in that, in theory, um, if the rule of the law is followed, the government's got to follow these laws and it's got to, has all these reporting requirements, which don't apply even nominally to the banks. That's exactly right.
0: Right. So if you look at the last 50 years, the people who are most admired have been able to get subsidized secretly and to look like they're the winners when they're really not. You know, the trick has been to get yep. the crowd to follow the criminals. How do you do that? You make the criminals look legitimate, you know, and and it all is engineered with the secret money. So, you know, it's it's going to keep coming back to whether or not private banks can can control the money system and they and therefore can can finance the secret operations
1: right right um and so what i want to talk about next is you know so we see the bank of bank of north america coming into place in 1781 as the first private bank of issuance now granted the bank of north america didn't last that long but it set the it set the trend right. for banks for private banks of issue i mean so right. i want to spend some time talking about the to the real problems with debt-based money, because when it's a bank of issue, as opposed to a state or a government issuing the money, they don't issue money, they issue credit, they issue IOUs. Right. And that creates big time problems. So I wanna walk through some of the problems because the, the problems of debt-based money, they have a cumulative; they snowball, and they right. get bigger and bigger and bigger, and we're gonna see that, okay? So I want to I want to talk about some of the, just some some of the defects with, with debt-based money are inherent, and some of them are historical, and they, they make sense. Like yeah, that jives with my own experience. So I want to get into these so you can see sort of how it snowballs up until two thousand and eight, because it really rears its head then it gets ugly. Okay, so debt the defects of debt-based money just to sort of punch through what those are. It's temporary and it's unsafe, um, meaning that the debt money gets extinguished when a loan is paid back, okay? Um, when a bank issues the money, it issues it as a loan. So a $1,000 loan puts $1,000 of new money into the system, but someone pays back $500 of principal, it $500 gets destroyed. So right. it's up and down and up and down and up and down with debt money. But another problem is y- your bank... If you if you're holding debt money and it's coming from a bank and uh, your money is sitting in a bank, you have nothing when the bank fails. Now, of course, after nineteen thirty-four you do because the FDIC was there, but that's a real problem. If you're banking with somebody and the bank fails, your money's gone. Right? Right. That's that's a real problem. Because basically the money boils down to it's just an entry on a ledger. Again, it's a it's a creature of law. That ledger is is good only as long as the bank is good. Right, and if the, if the bank goes, so does the ledger, so does your money. It's bye bye. So that's the first defect of debt money. It's temporary and it's unsafe. Um, next defect: debt money has no power to extinguish debts. What do I mean by that? Uh, it's not legal tender. It can be refused by a creditor. You know, it, because it's an IOU, it it can't necessarily pay off another IOU unless. The creditor agrees to it. Right. You have to have the creditor's consent with with real money, with what's called legal tender. I mean, in the U.S., legal money is cash and coin. It's Federal Reserve notes and coins. With real money, if if you make a tender of real money to a, your your lender, the lender has to take that money. And if the lender doesn't take it, the debt's gone anyway because you right. made legal tender. Right. And the 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 debt money just continues. It just continues perpetuates debt servitude because it, it doesn't the creditors don't have to agree to it it gives the creditors all the power uh next problem with de- debt money it's fraudulence causes misery you're going to love this one it's fraudulent in that you're getting something for nothing you're the banks are creating the money out of thin air and earlier we saw thomas jefferson writing a letter to john taylor now we're going to see taylor writing a letter to jefferson he says you know debt money employed not for the useful purpose of exchanging but for the fraudulent one of transferring property it converts currency is converted into a thief and a traitor and begets like an abuse of many other good things misery instead of happiness in other words these banks can just create money out of, out of thin air and buy your business right yeah you know? just make a ledger entry and they can just take over businesses gives the banks enormous control uh next up in the list of defects is the ratchet wrench of debt over money or debt or really interest over principle would be another way of thinking of it. What do I mean by that? What I mean is you need new debt to create new money, but you don't need new money to create new debt. So when you, if you want new money in the current system, someone needs to take out a loan, but you don't, the reverse isn't true. In other words, I could go out and borrow money from an insurance company or from you know, my sisters, and there's new debt in the system but there's no new money in the system so you right. have this exp- exponentiation of debt over real money and the debt can't ever be paid off and it just it increases at a rate way faster than the money and and so without a jubilee it, it sets up a real problem okay what is that problem booms and busts are guaranteed guaranteed delmar writes a lot about this he says you know until private issuance of, of money, there were no booms and busts. That's right. That's so. What? How does this this rears its head in American history, through the controlled contraction of the money supply, in which bankers basically transfer money to themselves, and so you walk through the history of, of contractions in the U.S. It really, um, all of them, are inspired by bankers. They all right. because they, they can cancel the money. And they right, can cause but it's depressions. Also,
0: it's also inspired by bankers planning and working together.
1: Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 Alfred Owen Crozier, who I talk a lot about and refer to a lot in, in the write-up, he says 1873 panic caused by bankers, 1893 panic caused by bankers, 1907 caused by bankers, and then Mullins— Yeah, Eustace Mullins says, and, you know, 1920, depression caused by bankers. They do these, 1929, they do these things for two reasons. One, when money supply contracts, the value of the bonds goes up, Right. right? And Wall Street is the big holder of bonds. And number two, because they know it's coming, because it's deliberately caused, they can short stocks, they can short companies. And number three, they can pick up assets dirt cheap when the collapse comes, So this happens again and again and again and again. And again, it's a ratchet wrench of increasing
0: bank power. It's a a harvesting, and after each harvesting, there's more central control.
1: Yes, more centralized control in the hands of the the oligarchy.
0: So so you expand, then you contract, and after each contraction, you have more control. Yes. Right.
1: That's exactly right. And... Along the, to that very point, uh, the next thing with booms and busts is bankers use the contractions. In every case there's ever been a contraction to get favorable laws passed every single
0: time. Right. And here's what's uh, interesting. Each time they do it, that they, they say, oh, there's fraud. We need this new law. And they pass another law that will never be enforced, just like the last one wasn't. So the problem is always that the last law wasn't enforced, but they never tell you that when they say, oh, we need a new law, because there's a double standard, and the, the new laws are enforced against the innocent, and, and the guilty never have to obey the law.
1: Right. And so one of those laws that doesn't get enforced, we saw this, this really got going in the 90s. Was the antitrust laws, right, and in particular the laws that would have barred the mergers, okay? So what happens? You know, back back in the back in the depression, before the depression, there were something like thirty thousand banks, right, in the U.S. In the twenties, there were thirty thousand banks, and nine thousand of them failed. You talk about a contraction of the money supply. That's what happens. Today, there's I don't know forty four hundred banks, right. The contraction has been massive. Right. Because of the merger mania, and the, the real problem though, isn't that that from thirty thousand to four thousand. The real problem is that banks, the top four, five, six, ten banks, whatever, they control a massive percentage of the money supply, right?
0: Right. Well, the the financial crisis significantly increased their market share and control. Significantly.
1: Yes. Right. Absolutely. But going into that, the banks never should have had that much power. They never should. The four banks should never have been in control. Right. Right. Of, of 40% of the money supply. I mean, the Great Depression w- w- witnessed the contraction of the money supplies to the tune of basically 30% over a period of four right. years.
0: But but I'm going to be a bad guy. I'm just about to write a review of a book that's about the Federal Reserve of the last 20 years. And they keep talking about the Fed as though its only role is money supply. If you look at not only no. what they were doing with money supply, but what was being done with fraudulent securities and fraudulent banking transactions and organized crime. We're talking about an organized crime syndicate operating throughout the economy that is deeply integrated with the central bank function and the money supply.
1: Totally. They also control right. the entirety of the budget of the National Science Foundation. Right. So, <laughs> right. You think right. that you think that's power? Maybe that's a, right. a smidgen of power too much for bankers to have, given what right. we've seen in the last two years? Right. That's crazy. But anyway, continuing on with the defect. So the defect, these are serious defects. Um, I want to just touch on uh, the, the real The real problem is this one we just talked about, laws not enforced versus bankers. And this has been going on, by the way, um, the history of non, non-enforcement against bankers. Since the South Sea Bubble in 1720, where the directors were fined and they weren't jailed, um, there's a book called The Lost Science of Money by Stephen Zarlenga, Came out about 2002. It's an 800-page, like the encyclopedia You know, of I
0: have it here. I haven't read it yet. So. It's
1: fantastic. Yeah, but I see he, it on he, your he, shelf. <laughs> he, yeah, yeah cause he talks to, <laughs> if you see it on my shelf, it means I'm out of focus. That's not good. Um, <laughs> but he talks about, Czar Lange is the one who points out that, that the non-enforcement really started with in 1720. Now, if you think about that, it's like, well, wow, that's a stunning thing because... 1694 was the creation of the Bank of England, In 1704 is when the party really got started. That was the, the passage of the Promissory Notes Act of 1704, and that is what made debt negotiable. That is when the bankers' IOUs really became money. So think about that. You go from 1704, okay, now the notes and banknotes are money, to 1720, you've already got your first implosion, and law enforcement isn't affected. It's not. It's not right. implemented at all.
0: But if you look at that period, John, though the the quality of life, the living standards are really rising dramatically for the yes. last two hundred years. Yes. The, so, but a lot of, a
1: lot of that was you know widespread literacy. Yeah, and A yeah, lot yeah. of that was yeah. There was a lot going on. Obviously, the bankers would tell you, well, that's because the central bank. Please.
0: <laughs> please. But the central bankers did allow. Some kind of blossoming that's now being reversed. Or they're trying to reverse.
1: They well, they unleashed a lot of wars. It right. started that because right. now all of a sudden you can print money willy-nilly, you can finance whole armies overnight. Right. You know, the wars again, it's like the non-enforcement of law started. Seven you know, as our language traces into seventeen twenty, and the right. wars start more or less right away. So as soon as you turn that power over from the state to the private ants, the party the party's on. It's game on.
0: Okay, so the way I always say it is the bond market made it possible for a ruler to do war on credit. And so you didn't have to tell the people you're gonna raise their taxes to pay for the war, particularly if you lost. You right. could just you could just bank it. <laughs> if you read Sun Tzu versus Clausewitz, you know, Clausewitz writes about war with the bond market. Sun Tzu writes about war where you have to finance it pay as you go. It's, it's very interesting to think of the financial ramifications. But once you had a bond market and you could finance war, you know, on credit, you were off to the yep. races.
1: You were off right? to the races. Exactly. And overlooked in that is that law, you know, domestically isn't being enforced. And the South Sea Bubble was the first of many, many, many episodes where the law wasn't enforced. And right. that is the, that's a huge problem. Um, So let's just, I'm going to turn back to this, finish this, round this point out. So no, no jailing of bankers going on since the South Sea. And the tie-in here is, you know, what's driving what here? Is that just a historical tendency? the the non-enforcement of law? Or, you know, I think part of it is, if you look, part of it is there's an inherent tie-in. Because Uh if you have the power to issue money... You have to have some power or of a force to protect the issuance of that money. Do you follow me? Uh huh. The, 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 there's some inherent power you have to have. But in any case, the laws not being a force versus banker versus bankers, that's a fatal defect, because it it grows like a cancer. Yes. You know it grew it grew like a cancer. Um, through American history up until 2008, and then we right. really and it's get a, into it. It's
0: a cancer that nobody can get together and stop even when they want to because it's too out of control. Right. You know, I, I, I doubt I ever told you this. My father had three kids, and he tried to persuade us all to become lawyers because he said lawyers had the power to, to make it possible for a group of people to not have to obey the law. Yes. And that was the greatest power there was. Right. Right. Right.
1: So... There's no law enforcement. it goes on I, 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 there's a lot of historical examples of non-law enforcement it, you know you saw 1720. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. We get to the financial crisis of 2008. there's a big implosion. And now I want to go to and pick up um, I know it's a big it's a big jump here we're making to post 2008, early in the Obama administration and t- we're going to talk about we're going to look at and see what the problem with non- enforcement of laws is against banks because it's, it gets absolutely huge. And it points to some real uh, problems that no one's talked about. I want to I sort of introduce your readers to a notion that I, I just drew this connection earlier, but I'll get to it. But right now, I want to go to uh, the first term of President Obama's administration and listen, listen carefully to what he has to say here. It's very interesting. This is 60 minutes. Uh, I can tell you just from uh, 40,000
2: feet that some of the most damaging behavior on Wall Street, in some cases, some of the least ethical behavior on Wall Street, wasn't illegal. That's exactly why we had to change the laws. Okay,
1: (laughs) that is obviously- Not true. Totally, total nonsense. And I'm gonna show you that as a matter of fact. But remember, Blackstone, the king can do no wrong. He doesn't mean, you know, this is the president talking. He doesn't mean, as it turns out, that Wall Street banks, as a matter of fact, didn't commit any crime. Some of the worst behavior, by the way, some of the worst behavior of Wall Street, the worst behavior by definition in a constitutional republic, the worst behavior is by definition crime. So when he says Obama says some of the worst behavior wasn't criminal, wasn't illegal, that's absolutely false because he's saying there was no crime. That's what he's saying. There's no crime. But he, he means that in a prospective way, like, yeah, we're not gonna look at the past crimes. You know, we need to work we need to focus on the future. So I wanna spend a, little, a minute saying and laying out how we know that there actually were crimes right uh, going on leading up to the financial crisis. And there's a there's a there's an amusing example I wanna lead off with um and I'll point out here this is a a Federal Reserve symposium held in Atlanta. That's Ben Bernanke in the center and Alan Greenspan on the right.
0: Um, Can I I just say one thing? Yeah. Um, And I say this. I'm going to pull pull sort of pull my card and say I say this as the former assistant secretary of housing. Ben Bernanke Uh. and Alan Greenspan engaged in massive securities fraud in the mortgage market and massive securities fraud and and depository fraud in affecting illegal transactions as the depository, and God knows what they were doing with the exchange stabilization fund. So you are looking at two people who are guilty of massive criminal behavior, massive systemic criminal behavior. None of, all that that fraud was absolutely known to them and they were facilitating it and it was intentional. Okay okay
1: um i want you to keep that's a great intro to this clip <laughs> okay um i want to just let's just focus on one thing really quick so they're both engaged in fraud um this guy right here though greenspan is 85 years old and i didn't notice this until i did this presentation that glass is not water that glass is looks has the color of wine to it to me but you be the judge. I want you to listen to what Greenspan says because he talks about crime and he talks about fraud. And I want you to listen, watch Ben Bernanke's reaction, Ben Bernanke's body language and really everybody's body language, including the cameraman's body language when Greenspan gets going and what can only be described as a senior moment. So here we go, let's listen to this. This is so rich. All capital
2: that I see is the problem And I'm not saying there are lots, I think there was rampant fraud in a lot of what was going on in these markets. But my general judgment is that there are two fundamental reforms that we need is to get adequate capital and two, to get far higher
1: levels of enforcement of fraud statutes. Existing ones, I'm not even talking about new
2: things were being done which were... uh, certainly illegal and clearly criminal in certain cases, which, I mean, fraud Fraud is a fact. Fra- fraud creates very considerable instability in competitive markets. If you cannot trust your counterparties, uh, it won't work. And indeed, we saw, saw that it didn't.
1: Ben Bernanke. Wants to crawl out of his – even the cameraman's like, I want, I want to get out of here. This is not – people in the audience are like, what's he saying? What's he saying? Yeah. There was the, certainly illegal and clearly criminal. Right. And notice, and notice too, he says – I'm not even talking – not new laws, Obama. Don't yeah. need new laws. Yeah. I'm talking about existing ones, like, I don't know, fraud. That's been right. around three, four, five hundred 500 years. You know, I mean, he just goes off and these guys – so you know – Greenspan just lets the cat out of the bag. Had you ever seen that clip
0: before? I had never seen that clip before.
1: (laughs) I've never seen that clip. Yeah, that's a good one. So his conclusion, uh, Greenspan, rampant fraud on Wall Street, rampant fraud in the markets. And when he says adequate capital, by the way, what he means is collateral. Collateral that isn't infected through with fraud. He's talking about mortgage-backed securities okay, but and I of Lehman
0: Brothers. I, I just want to point one thing out. If you look at the rampant fraud that he is referring to, that <laughs> rampant fraud can't happen unless it is affected daily for years with the help of the Department of Justice, the Department of the Treasury, the New York Fed, and the governors of the Federal Reserve Board. It's It's kind of like me saying you know uh, i'm trying to think of an example you know the fraud is coming out of your house but you're not opening and shutting the door to let it in and out do you know what i mean if you if you look at the mechanical steps that have to be taken day in day out in the economy to affect all of this fraud you know they have to be intentionally doing it
1: yeah. oh yeah 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 in fact that's you're going to see that in the next clip so you have you have greenspan who i would say He's a he's a Wall Street insider, no doubt. That's where he came from. Um, he's saying, you know, Obama, you're wrong. There was there was crime and then there was fraud, but even intelligent outsiders were hip to the game. Meaning people who had sort of looked at the issue and, and studied it a little bit.
2: And
0: well, but he, he what, said he said there was fraud, but what he anybody who knows how the system works knows that what that means is yes, we were doing fraud. It, Oh
1: yeah, yeah.
0: The odds—the
1: yeah. odds that there was rampant fraud and he wasn't a part of it—are are zero. Zero. Right, so, and that's so, why Bernanke is so uncomfortable.
0: Right, because he's admitting that the Fed's engaging in massive fraudulent transactions, D- banking Ellen. transactions, and and fraudulent securities, and they're running the U.S. securities market without right. full and fair disclosure and right. with material omission. Right. Right.
1: So that that clip was. Um, I think that was 2011. Anyway, I want to go to the next one. This next one is of Ted Kaufman, who, remember, Kaufman had stepped in. He's a political outsider, but he, had, more or less, he had stepped into Biden's uh, shoes in the Senate, including his shoes on the Judiciary Committee for two years. Because right. Biden and, and became the vice president. And at that he left the Senate, and so Kaufman fills his shoes. And Kaufman wants to know, Hey, you know what? What caused this crisis? And here's what he concludes. So Coffin by, by training, as an engineer, and then I got an MBA, um, and he was—I think he was chief of staff um, in Biden's office for a while. But anyway, he gets on the Judiciary Committee, and this is what he—he he concludes about uh, the matter. So this is this is a clip. He's talking to Lanny Brewer, but it doesn't really matter who he's talking to. I mean I am absolutely convinced after the hearings we had of the permanent investigation subcommittee and the studies I've been doing for this for this uh for this for this bill that there is rampant fraud in these in these cases. I mean I I don't see how you can explain behavior other than there was a concerted effort uh to be engaged in fraud. I am not talking about any specific case. Okay so you know Obama doesn't know what he's talking about. Could you have Greenspan saying there's rampant fraud. Kaufman, there's rampant fraud. There was there was a lot of fraud. Obama and a lot of crime. Um, but the real the real nail here in Obama's theory that Wall Street didn't perpetrate uh, any crime, any fraud comes from his own Attorney General. Um, in the next clip, let's take a look at this. This is Eric Holder. Um, sorry, this is Eric Holder in the UBS <laughs> UBS case. UBS. Um, had had been on the hook a number of times for crime. Um and this is this is Eric Holder talking about the UBS case. This is late two thousand and twelve. All right. Get this clip here.
2: Okay. Today, the Justice Department is filing a criminal information charging UBS Securities Japan, a subsidiary of the multinational financial institution UBS AG, with felony wire fraud for engaging in a scheme to manipulate the London Interbank Offered Rate, or LIBOR, a key benchmark for financial products and transactions around the world. The company has agreed to plead guilty to this charge, to admit to its criminal conduct and to pay a 100 million dollar fine.
1: So that that pretty well kills Obama's theory <coughs> that there was no crime on Wall Street. Right. Um, there was there was a lot of crime, and his own attorney general uh, just said so. But you, you know, as you remember from the UBS case, nobody went to jail. He, he just said the company admitted that they're pleading guilty to wire fraud, to fraud. So why is nobody going to jail? For that in that case, and you have to know it helps to understand a little bit of the law here. What it means when a bank commits a crime or a corporation commits a crime. Okay, my legal history professor used to say, you know, corporations they're 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 fictions. They they can't commit crime. They don't have eyes. They don't have a mouth. They don't have hands. You know, they're
0: really they have a life. Uh, if a death penalty, I mean, I think we ought to have death penalties for corporations, and I would point out that they can die,
1: right. But right. his his point is they can't. They're 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 legal entities, you know. They don't they don't they're not walking around on the street,
2: right. You know, there's
1: no inherent man's you know, mind in a corporation, and so the legal theory of of prosecuting a corporation, any corporation, it's under the doctrine what's called respondeat superior, and the basic notion is is If a corporation has so many employees, so many high-ranking employees committing crimes, that at some point it becomes fair to charge the corporation itself, the legal entity, as a criminal enterprise. Because that's what you're doing. You're operating as a criminal enterprise. So when when you prosecute a bank, when you say that a bank commits a crime or a corporation commits a crime, keep in mind that it is legally impossible for a corporation to commit a crime, without a lot of employees and a lot of high-ranking employees in that corporation committing right. crimes on the individual level, and what you saw with UBS was, oh yeah, the bank pleaded guilty or the bank committed a crime, but nobody goes to jail, right? Right. You can't put the corporation in jail. So now I want to turn to why that's the case. Like, what's going on here? Why you know what? Why give UBS a pass? And so I want to show you this article from Forbes came out in 2012 so some months before the ubs case obama's doj and wall street too big for jail i'm going to cut down to uh, the key section that concerns us um, and highlight that and just read it and we zoom in covington burling the firm from which both attorney general eric holder and associate attorney general uh, lanny brewer he's also head of the criminal division lanny brewer hail that's their firm covington burling has as its current clients, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, Deutsche Bank, ING, Morgan Stanley, and UBS. UBS, right? UBS, as well as MF Global, among others. So that so he, so in other words, the attorney general is getting up there and telling you that yeah, we're not basically we're not we're not prosecuting our own client, right? That's what right. he's saying, right? Yeah, we're we're not going to prosecute our own client, right? And that's just I mean, it's just like, well, how did we'll get to it in a right. minute? How did how Covington and Berlin got in there? But that's just astonishing.
0: Well, but what it means is all crime is a pricing function. In other words, you know, if I make a billion and I pay a hundred million in fine, then it's a, a nine hundred million dollar profit, right? Yeah, Yep. Yeah. it's it's right. just a
1: pricing function. Exactly. Exactly, and right. you don't even worry about the fine because you can pay it out of future proceeds for more crimes.
0: Right, so but it's... I will I will be a bad guy and say um, that to function in a state, you have to have a good standing certificate. And so, there's not a state in America that couldn't pull pull the good standing certificate on J.P. Morgan Chase or UBS or Citibank, and and not only not allow them to you know to do business with the state government or its pension funds or <sighs> or public benefit corporations and other agencies, but they could pull their standing to function in that state.
1: Yeah. Right. Yep, for sure. Right. Um, now, for a long time during Obama's first term, as Ted Kaufman was sort of on their on their tails saying, hey, you know, we need to rein in this crime. Um, i adjust my volume a little bit. Uh, the, the DOJ, through Lanny Brewer mostly, was offering excuse after excuse after excuse about, you know, why they couldn't prosecute crime. And they were getting a lot of, they were, they were don't get me wrong, they were prosecuting a lot of crime, but they were small timers. Right. Okay. All right. They weren't prosecuting any Wall Street crime. Um, and they kept inventing excuse after excuse. It's all lies. Lie, 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 lie. And when one lie failed, they just moved on to another. Finally, though, in the UBS case. And at the same time, there was the HSBC case. They came up with a new one, and people were like, "What? What's this?" Um, and I want to play this clip from the UBS. The same. It's from the same hearing uh-huh. or the same same press conference where they're giving UBS a pass despite the commission of crimes. Um, and listen to what Eric Holder says about why they're going to give UBS a pass here. Let um, me cut to that clip see those
2: factors with regard to impact let 's be honest yeah I mean that's a factor, and i 'm not talking about just this case, um, but in others that we have resolved. the impact on the stability of the financial markets around the world is something that we take into consideration. We we reach out to experts outside of the Justice Department to talk about what are the consequences of uh, actions that we might take. What would be the impact of those um, actions if we wanted to make a particular prosecutive decision or determination with regard to a particular institution? So that factors into the kinds of um, decisions that that we make. Now,
1: (laughs) that is an incredibly dangerous statement, because what that means is if you're big enough, you're above the law. That that's what he's saying. Um, again, that that that's sort of the legal policy statement that if you're big enough, you're above the law. When I first heard that, and for years afterwards, I, I thought they literally were, he, when he said we reached out to experts, I was like, yeah, you reached out to your own clients, you know, your your client list, like UBS. That's who that's who your experts are. It's a defendant telling you don't prosecute the defendant. But the more time has gone on, the more I've come to realize that that itself. That clip there and the whole notion of collateral consequences of prosecuting a crime, that's a cover story itself. Right. Okay. Okay. And the the way I came to realize that was when I started to think about the implications, I think, of the next clip I'm going to show you. Um let me see here. Yeah, here we go. Um and listen to what this is from the front line, the untouchables. Uh-huh. Uh, this is Martin Smith, where he gets he wants he wants answers. Like, why are you not going after these banks? I mean, this was a disaster for the Justice Department and a disaster for Lanny Brewer. Lanny Brewer is number two at the DOJ. He's mm-hmm. from Covington and Burling, as we saw. He's the uh, head of the criminal division. Listen to this. This is just insane what he says. Okay. We spoke to a couple of sources from within the criminal division. And they reported that when it came to Wall Street, there were no investigations going on. There were no subpoenas, no document reviews, no wiretaps.
2: Well, I don't know who you spoke with, because we have looked hard at the very types of matters that you're talking about. These
1: sources said that at the weekly indictment approval meetings,
2: that there was no case ever mentioned that was even close to indicting Wall Street for financial crimes. Well, Martin, if you look at what we and the U.S. attorney community did, I think you have to take a step back. Uh, wow.
1: <laughs> no investigations going on, no subpoenas, no docket reviews, no wiretaps, no investigations at all. If you look at elsewhere in that episode, which came out, by the way, in January of 2013, they confirmed you didn't have any whistleblowers, you didn't have any witnesses, you didn't lift a finger. Right. So in other words, Collateral consequences really didn't have anything to do with it. The real thing is you never investigated. Right. You were put in there so that there, wa- there were no investigations.
0: It was hands-off from the beginning.
1: It's hands-off from day—we knew from day one right. nobody's going to jail.
0: So, so part of it is you can't send people to jail for doing what you've asked them to do. So let me see if I can explain this. We talk about Goldman Sachs and Citibank and J.P. Morgan like they're separate from the New York Fed. They're not separate. They own the New York Fed. The New York Fed works for them. okay? and and the New York Fed is also the depository for the U.S. government. So all the transactions for the U.S. government are implemented by a subsidiary owned by Goldman Sachs, Citibank and J.P. Morgan Chase and and those firms are also the primary dealers selling the securities for the government. And given that 21 trillion or whatever the number is disappeared through the US government accounts, the government is dependent on issuing more bonds which have to be issued with no disclosure.
2: Yeah.
0: So all of this has been engineered by these banks running the US government you know, and levering it up into essentially a financially bankrupt or economically bankrupt situation. And they've done it by violating the securities laws and the disclosure laws, permitting all those bank transactions to happen, some of which were illegal, but certainly the government is is disobeying the financial management laws. It's disobeying the constitutional provisions Were you know, regarding financial management regarding financial disclosure. So so you have over a 20 plus year period you're operating whether it's the issuance of the bonds or the affecting of the bank transactions you're operating a criminal enterprise financially. Yeah, oh yeah. Right, yeah, and everybody's up to his eyeballs in it and if you stop doing it everybody in America does you know stops getting their their government check.
1: Right. The crime has become a drug. And you take it off and you know, the patient dies Right. because of withdrawal.
0: Right. And everybody's yeah. in on it. So you can't bust anybody for doing what the system is dependent on. In other words, if yeah. the system is going to continue the next day, everybody's got to continue to break the law. And so you can't bust them for breaking the law because that's what you're asking them to do day in, day out, day in, day out.
1: Yeah. Right. That's the bargain. Right. You know, you, you going to join your criminal enterprise if they know you're going to roll over on.
0: them. Right. Exactly. Right. So yeah. how are you going to prosecute anybody? All you can do is, you know, grab back a piece of the winnings for the, you know, for the bonus pool at the Department of Justice because they want their fair share of the shakedown. Yeah. So
1: I want to tie this notion of no investigation, no prosecution arrest back to the issue of sovereignty. Right, because it has direct implications, and the way I want to do that is I want to compare here um, the pro- what happened to Wall Street with what happened to Nixon. Right. Because remember, Nixon got himself in legal trouble, and he he asserted the banks just we saw asserted sovereign immunity basically, and they for granted it. Nixon tried the same thing and didn't. So I want to I've set up a comparison here. Um, so who's accused of the crime? We have Nixon, President Nixon. On the one hand, and we have Wall Street banks on the other. Uh, was the accused investigated? Uh, Nixon most certainly was investigated by the, ju- by the Justice Department. But the banks, Wall Street banks, we just saw were not investigated. No subpoenas, no document reviews, no wiretaps. There were subpoenas of Nixon. Um, who asserted criminal immunity? In Nixon's case, Nixon asserted it, you know, through defense counsel. But he asserted immunity himself with Wall Street. Wall Street banks did not assert immunity. It was the Justice Department asserting immunity on behalf of the Wall Street banks, which ought to be a clue to you that really, at that point, the DOJ is representing Wall Street. It's not representing the American people. Was the assertion of immunity successful with Nixon? No. He tried to assert immunity, and the court said, no, absolutely not. Turn over the tapes. Wall Street banks? Yeah, they successfully asserted immunity. We just saw that. Is there a written record of the decision-making process? In Nixon case, yeah. It's called U.S. versus Nixon. It's a Supreme Court case. Now, he wasn't actually the defendant. He was a third party being subpoenaed. But yeah, uh, there's a record of that decision. You can see the court's reason where Nixon tried to assert executive privilege and the court rejected it. But in a Wall Street's case, as far as a, a record of the decision-making, no. There's no, there's no record at all. Um, and finally, did the accused... The defendant get presidential pardon. Nixon did. He got pardoned by Ford. Wall Street, not applicable. Wall Street don't need no pardon, right? Right. No. uh, Wall Street got off the hook there. And so.
0: Well, remember, the Secret Service are a group of guys who carry guns around the president. And what we know from the Kennedy assassination is those guns turn in, not just out. And they report, where does the Secret Service report to? The Secretary of the Treasury.
1: (laughs) Oh, wow. Oh, that's right, right. The president
0: president works for the banks, and the bankers have guys with guns on him every day making sure he does what the banks want.
1: Yeah, right. 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 (laughs) That's a great point. I mean, it gets back into the money issuance is tied into. The, the the monopolization of violence, monopolization of of execution of the laws, right, right. They're they're tied together, and so what I'm saying here is that if if since the banks, you, you could just saw in that chart, the banks literally have more legal power now than the president does. Right. The president can be investigated. The president he can be subpoenaed and everything else. He's not above the law. The banks are above the law. Right. You know, nobody goes to jail. Nobody was even investigated. And that's a shocking thing, because what that means is there had to have been somewhere along the line, there had to have been a coup d'etat. Right. Because the constitutional government does not permit. We saw from the beginning. It, it, we can't. We don't. Our, the whole premise of right. the country is nobody is above the law. And yet here we have people who are above the law.
0: So, so. Uh, you know, I call it the financial coup. Sam Smith calls it the creeping coup. One of the aspects of compromising sovereignty was inserting private contractors to control the telecommunications and the information systems of the government um, and the payment system. So uh, if you ever heard the story of the guys who went into Greece thinking that they were going to Rebuild sovereignty and they discovered that the bankers essentially controlled the payment systems that the taxes flowed in on and they couldn't get control of the tax money, even though they were running the government. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. I remember Greece was a big, that was 2013, if I recall.
0: Right. And you've got the same problem in the U.S. government because the president, you know, is dealing with a group of corporate contractors running the payment systems and banks running the payment systems and can't necessarily get control of the treasury flows.
1: Yeah. Right. Right. Um, And so I want to turn to I want to go to TARP, because remember, um, the bailout, (laughs) the TARP bailout passed right before the election. Right. 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 Okay, that was October of 2008. The election's November 2008.
0: And Obama was very significant in making that happen as a senator.
1: Oh, we're going to see that big time. Yeah. We're going to see that big time. Um, How important he's. Again, I learn something when I do these. This is an eye-opener, but I want to set the stage for it by going to a film by Michael Moore in 2009 called Capitalism, A Love Story, in which he has a couple of interviews that are like, what did the person just say? Um, And in this case, he's interviewing Elijah Cummings, um, representative from Maryland, and Marcy Kaptur, representative from Ohio. Um, And he's talking about TARP. Like, how did they, you know, because remember, TARP was rejected September 29th. The, the, The House voted it down. And then four four days later, on October third, the House passes it after it passed in the Senate. So what what happened? And they're talking about, you know, the, his interview with them is like, well, what what went on there? How do you explain this? And their interview is very revealing because it supports the theory there's been a coup d'état. So I want right. to cut to these these clips because they're so good. This whole fiasco shows you
2: that the there's some 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 forces. Uh, that are not you, democratic, right? That are in control, big time.
0: They did a masterful job, very well executed.
2: Do you think it's too harsh to call what has happened here a coup d'état, a financial coup d'état? That's no,
1: because
2: I think that's what's happened.
1: Yeah, how about yeah. that? Financial yeah. coup d'état. Yeah. That's that's what that's what they're saying with TARP. Right now so what's what's obama's connection to this um and again this is something I, I i learned doing this project i tied things together i knew about this document i was like i never saw the connection before you have to go back over materials to sort of see the timeline and stuff the timeline it's always that always tells you what's going on but remember i think it was 2016 wikileaks had a bunch of documents come out
2: mm-hmm. and there was a,
1: there was a memo that came out about obama's cabinet before the election you remember
0: that let me show you this. I don't remember this.
1: Yeah, okay. I wondered about that, but we'll let's take a look at this. Okay, you're looking at a memo there. I'm going to zoom in. Don't worry here. This memo, let's just go through the particulars of it. This is from um, Michael Froman of Citigroup. Now, Citigroup was actually the biggest recipient of the bailouts of all. They got $45 billion of TARP along with Bank of America, but they really got the from the Fed and the FDIC too. Citigroup was the biggest loser of the bunch. $28 billion in losses in 2008. So Froman from Citigroup is writing to um, John Podesta of the Obama transition team. Nice to know they're discussing this over Gmail. Um, and no, notice the date here. Uh, I said October 3rd was when Tart passed, that was a Friday. Podesta's uh, getting this from Froman on October 6th. So Monday, October 6th, 9.30 in the morning, um, Froman from, from Citigroup writes to Podesta St. John, attached are three documents. Uh, the first two really are, don't concern us that much. They have to do with minority hires and diversity. Um, and he's, we want to talk about the third one. He says, at the risk of being presumptuous, I also scoped out how the cabinet-level appointments might be put together. So let's talk about, Obama, what, what Citigroup, what we here at Citigroup think about. Um, the appointment process so you might want to have. And so I want to go to the attachment there, the Word document that was attached there and then zoom in and we want to look at a couple. Most of this document, by the way, ended up becoming true. But I want to highlight Justice Department, they have Holder as a candidate. Uh, Ken Salazar didn't get it. And if you remember Holder, um, you know we saw Remember we saw UBS, right? But notice also that one of Covington and Burling's clients, Citigroup. Right. How about how about that? Isn't that funny? Anyway, uh, keep it going. Let me just go to the next here we go. Back to the back to the document that Froman is giving to John Podesta. The Treasury official Uh, Here, you have three choices. You could have Robert Rubin. uh,
0: (laughs) (laughs) Your favorite (laughs) guy, who
1: Who is never, he's he's like chief of the executive office of Citigroup at the time. Or Tim, and actually, he's not going to get it because he's implicated in a fraud within Citigroup um, involving mortgage-backed securities. Geithner or Larry Summers. uh, Larry Summers is not going to get it either. The notion that Larry Summers, supposedly Geithner worked for Summers. Back in the day when Summers was uh, Treasury Secretary, I'm here to tell you that the notion that Larry Summers was ever Geithner's boss is just absolutely—it's uh, risible. That—that's just a... <laughs> okay. That's just... <laughs> so. Anyway, that's an illustration of the power these banks have, right? And that—that, that, in other words, that TARP was a really important thing. They needed that TARP to pass, that bailout to pass. Before that cabinet came in, right? Right. Yeah. That, so, in other words, Captor is right. There was that was coup d'état.
0: Right. Absolutely. That was a, success,
1: that was a successful coup d'état in the U.S. in broad daylight.
0: And what was amazing was, you know, the bailout vote was turned down the first time because there was more than eighty percent against. You know, I was calling my congressman's office every five minutes, and and she voted again. I mean, uh, she voted against it both times. So, but but literally, it passed the second time around with more than eighty percent of the American people opposing it.
1: Yeah, right, right. And the initial right. the initial opposition was more like ninety nine to one. Right. I mean, when they first floated that around September twentieth, people went ballistic. Right. It, it was it was crazy. Um. Okay, but I want to turn back to something you raised earlier about whether it's the same owners of the Fed and the banks and reconsider the issue of um, who has sovereign power, because it's not really, it's not not as straightforward. Let's just, I want to do a comparison here back to who has sovereign power in the U.S. I want to compare the Fed and Wall Street banks, sort of like we compared Wall Street with with Nixon. Um, And we'll say, we'll start with. The Federal Reserve versus Wall Street. Who is the owner, okay, of the Fed and Wall Street? We don't know. Really, who right. owns the Fed, and we don't really know who owns Wall Street banks.
0: Well, we own, we we know for the twelve member banks that their stocks are owned by their members. Okay, and, but the members are. The members are supposedly the banks in their jurisdiction. Right. But if you if you look at how their ownership works and how the ownership could trail back. I think you're right there it's a big question. The other thing is it's secret who they as a practice share their data with.
1: Right. So you, you you know that. Right. But how do you know that?
0: So at the time I was doing research on who owned the fed I wrote to all the public affairs departments of the 12 banks and I said first of all who owns you and and who has what percent it's not enough to say you know the members own us. I wanted to know which members have what percent. Um, so that was number one. Number two, I said, who do you share your data? Who who runs your your data systems? What companies run your data systems? And and who has access to that data? Your you know, do your members have access to the data? Who else has? And they wrote back and they said both are confidential. All twelve. <laughs> Right. I think some right. of them just never responded, but the all the ones that did said that's confidential,
1: or it's a trade secret or some such thing. Yeah. You're not would, we're not telling. Right,
0: you. we're private. That's secret. No such luck. Yeah. Right. yeah, go pack sand. Yeah. So I
1: want to get back <laughs> to this comparison because it's uh, it's telling about who is really in charge here. Uh, we don't know. So we don't know who the owner is, but who regulates these institutions? The Fed supposedly is regulated by Congress. Wall Street, in turn, the banks—they're regulated by the Fed, okay. And That's that's so. The Fed nominally is in charge of the banks, but that's not really the source of the Fed power.
0: Well, but the OCC of, has has jurisdiction as well.
1: Yes, that's true. But the right. but the Fed, you know, it's sort of like your parent, right? Yeah, you, know, you, you you can't you got to answer to both of them, and the Wall Street banks have to answer to the Fed for sure.
0: They have to answer to Fed, but then they own the Fed.
1: Right, right. But here's the <laughs> here's the key thing I want to get to. Right. right. Can it? I'm looking at, the, at both institutions as a single entity. Can it be forced to take on liabilities? Um, in the Fed's case, the answer is no. In uh, Wall Street, the answer is yes. The Fed can force Wall Street banks, can force any bank under its jurisdiction, to take on liabilities. We that's the history. That's what we, one of the things we've learned in the pandemic, that the Fed just all it's got to do is buy an asset from a non-bank, and then the non-bank then has to go to its bank, and the you know, that, its bank sets up a deposit account, a liability, for the non-bank purchaser of the Fed's asset.
0: And we always know, we are we know that any any Wall Street bank that refuses to take on liability for the Fed's like Bear Stearns, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> they find You're themselves getting... shot. <laughs>
1: Exactly. You're not long for this world, but legally they have to, they have to do that. The fed can say, you've got us, you've got to accommodate this guy. So let's
0: go back. Show show that chart again. I want to show you something. This gets back. What this says is, okay, who is the owner? That's the important question,
1: right? That's the power
0: equation. And we don't know. Right.
1: Okay. So keep this going. I'm, I'm getting to a point here. Can it be bankrupted? The no. Fed cannot be bankrupted. I, I put an asterisk there, I'll explain that in a minute. Wall Street banks can be bankrupted, right? For sure. Any bank can be bankrupted because they can't freely issue liabilities. And the reason for that is that you know you issue, let's say you're, you know, Joe Blow Bank, you issue you set up a deposit account for a million dollars on a loan, that depositor can turn around and say, Hey, I want that in cash. And the, so, and the bank can't freely print cash. So,
0: so think of it this way: this is so the real owners can make sure their employees behave.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. You, ding. I want to go. I want to go back though to the asterisk uh-huh. on the Fed. The, at one time, in theory, um, I, the reason I have an asterisk there is uh, it's a it's now it's an unqualified no, but up until 1971, it was a qualified no because. The Fed could issue liabilities. It it did. It issued currency, and foreign countries like France could say, "Oh yeah, thirty-five million dollars is the same as uh, a million ounces of gold, and it's redeemable." Let's say a million ounces of gold, and the Fed would have to produce it. So, in that sense, the Fed at one time could be—it really couldn't be bankrupted—but it could be. It was issuing real liabilities. Now it doesn't issue real liabilities. Now it's basically issuing money, but. Let's go to the next question. Can it issue legal tender? The Fed can, and the banks can't, right? right. The Fed, in other words, the Fed has the power to extinguish debts, right. and Wall Street banks do not. And that's really just that as far as the um, power. In other words, so the power mention, of the U.S. is with the Fed. Can
0: I mention one more thing? Yeah. If you, if you look at that chart, the New York Fed runs the Exchange Stabilization Fund, which is what I call the financial bazooka which is one of the most important roles of a reserve currency. You've got to have basically a financial nuclear arsenal is the only way I can describe it. And it's yeah. dependent on all these different banks to implement, you know, many of those operations. But that is, you know, that is arguably one of if not the most powerful points in the whole financial system and they control that. Right.
1: The other thing they control, and this is really will wind down and conclude the presentation. The reason I bring this up, the legal relationship between the Fed and between the banks is that the banks are not, the Wall Street banks, private banks, are not in a position to destroy U.S. sovereignty, but the Fed is. The Fed most certainly is because it has the power of legal tender.
0: Well, the Fed has. The Fed has that right. power. Yes. And you know who their biggest helpmate has been doing that? Uh, their biggest... Helpmate. No. Congress. Yeah. Big Congress, problem. Congress has legalized usury. Congress has destroyed the next generation with student debt. Congress has allowed the, the government to operate without be, uh, obeying the Constitution and the financial management laws, and on and on and right. on. Congress... You know, when when Eisenhower first prepared his military-industrial speech, he was going to have it be military-industrial-congressional complex and at the last minute cut out the Congress.
1: Right. So let's talk about usury for a second. Congress has enabled the Fed with usury. The way that works is when the U.S. needs money, it has to issue an IOU. Under the Federal Reserve System, the U.S. government issues an IOU at interest and the fed issues the money at no right. interest right so there's a, there's an arbitrage between the bond rate and the zero rate on the currency that it's going into the fed's pocket that's pure usury because there's no risk to the fed the fed's entire power derives from the government so yeah i'm not saying the government will never fail it certainly is but i'm saying what i am saying is from the Fed's point of view, that's no difference at all because if if, it, if the government goes down, it's taking the Fed with it. That's so, pure usury.
0: So the Fed would argue that uh, the dividends after expenses flow back to the Treasury. Right. Now that's that's if you trust I've, their numbers.
1: <laughs> that's if you trust their numbers, and that's ignoring the fact, as I pointed out earlier, the Fed isn't issuing liabilities. It's got right. It's got eight trillion dollars now, eight and a half trillion dollars of liabilities sitting on its balance sheet they're not liabilities are they no they're equity whose right. equity are they that right. belo- equity belongs to us right and they so they've enriched themselves to the tune of eight and a half nine trillion dollars that's our money that's right. not a liability you get because you can't it can't be redeemed in anything other than what the Fed itself creates right? right right okay so that's that's a bunch of nonsense oh well we give it all back to the Treasury yeah okay. <laughs> You're giving you giving peanuts back to the treasury. In the meantime, you're ignoring the nine trillion dollars you stole. It's sitting right. right there in a balance sheet, and you're hiding right. it in broad daylight by calling it a liability. It's not. It's not. But then the other the point to issue about the point to bring up about the sovereignty is you know these CBDCs are a real risk because eventually you know all these countries are are going for CBDCs at the same time. And you've heard Jerome Powell say any number of times, along with any number of other central bankers, that the CBDC is going to be the third liability on the Fed's balance sheet after reserves and after cash. So they're calling it a liability. Now, and all the nations are doing it. And so you could see a scenario where all the nations need to settle their transactions in the same way that commercial banks need to settle their IOUs, right? Right. They're trading among each other. We need to settle things out. Eventually, there will be a time when along comes someone who says, you know, we need a way to settle these transactions. And that's how it'll be pitched. We right. need a we need a currency. You know, the world's changed. You know, things are different now. We need a world reserve currency to settle these transactions. It can't be a the dollar because the dollar, you know, the CBDC is a liability. The Fed says so. The BIS says so. We need a res- reserve currency just to settle among currencies. And once that happens, once there's a reserve, in other words, once there's a currency that the Fed can't print and that the government can't print, that's ballgame. Right. Then they got you. They got you the same way the Fed has Wall Street banks, right?
0: Well, that's why the logical thing is they do want to use humans as the collateral because yeah. then they can force a totally accountable system, which will be absolutely gr- gruesome and be- mm. you know, brutal for the people.
1: Right. You got it. Right right now, right now, you know, when, when the, the collateral on the Fed's, the, the collateral on the Fed's liabilities, the, the corresponding asset is bonds, right? It's US, right? But it's IOUs from the government. But there's no reason that they can't atomize that down to the individual level and use people, right? To, you know, to, to, to individual notes on people to collateralize
0: so the, the CBDC. Pain, I would say the pain of the current system is inflation. Or debasement, right? The pain, the pain of the CBDC system is slavery.
1: Yes, it's outright ownership, right? Um, and one of the things I point out in, in the paper and the written materials is, human beings have been used as money in history. Right. Um, it's been a, it's been a while, and not, more recently in Central Africa, but uh, 1500s, um, in in, in Spain when Spain conquered uh, South America and part of the Americas uh they the people were used as money um and again so, it gets back to we're reversing history as we saw at the outset
0: so there are two things i wanted to bring up before we close one is um during when i was litigating with the department of justice and i really had to explore the issues some of the issues that were that you so beautifully described today i realized that the bankers were spending Phenomenal time and money on the appearance of the rule of law. In other words, they and part of it was they had access to taxpayers' money to do it. but I at one point during the litigation i when I realized how much money they were spent on my surveillance on you know eighteen audits and investigations, twelve tracks of litigation, twenty four seven surveillance, I thought you know, this is unbelievably expensive. Why don't they just kill me? I mean, clearly they can just, they just kill people all the time. What's the problem? And I realized, oh, they need it to look like I've lost. They needed me to look like I've failed. They yeah. need, and 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 it, it has become, I believe, the biggest job program in the world. It's sort of managing things so they can continually pretend that the rule of law exists. And what I realized was the whole system, you know, the multiple between 20 and one in the stock market comes from persuading people and and them having confidence in the appearance of the rule of law. And it's a huge industry.
1: Uh, it's got to be. The, the, yeah. What I would call the, the theater management.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, it's
1: untold millions of people employed right. in, that, in that industry.
0: It's incredible.
1: Yeah, it is. And,
0: and part of it is... As we've stolen the money out of the federal government and blown all these bubbles with quantitative easing, you know, and all the different things the Fed is doing with going direct, you know, they're blowing bubble after bubble after bubble. And to keep all these assets spiling around, it's like that movie Margin Call, you know, they need need all these pretend stories of why... you know, why these things have real value and why these prices are justified. And, you know, that was one of Bernanke's really great qualities. He could, you know, both he and Greenspan could invent stories of why things were worth this much and say it with a straight face. Bernanke could just say it with a straight face. You just couldn't believe it.
1: Yeah, but his body language would give him away as you just saw.
0: Yeah, that's the first time I've seen his body language really give him away. Okay, so... So one of the things I wanted I wanted to think about was that the appearance of the rule of law yes. you know is very significant. The other thing is the population for a long time, the general population, particularly in America and the G seven, has bought in. Because I think everybody realizes the day the party stops, you know, they're in trouble. Right. And so there's been a real fear of pulling the plug on the Party, And when I've explored with people why they're afraid to pull the plug, what I realize is that so many brilliant, educated, intelligent people do not understand what it has meant to enjoy the blessings of sovereignty, of individual right. sovereignty and of... You know, the Treaty of Westphalia national sovereignty. They have no... We are so spoiled because we've always enjoyed it. We don't understand what it's like to live in a world where it doesn't exist.
1: And the rule of law going back to 1215. Right. Right? The Magna Carta. I mean, these are ancient concepts. I want to touch on something, though, you said with... You know, why there's such a huge investment in the appearance of the rule of law. Right. And and there's a video, and I I talk about it in... um, in the paper. There's a video, a presentation by Glenn Greenwald at Yale Law School in 2013, where he talks about the rule of law. He had written a book called In Liberty and Justice for Some. And he talks about the rule of law. And a very important point he makes during that presentation is the role that fear plays in the right. rule of law, that the rulers, you know, in a healthy functioning society, the rulers over the rule, they have fear. That right. they they know the rule of law is important they know that a level playing field is important and so they go out of their way because they might be feared of they might be afraid of you know physical violence they might be afraid of reputational damage whatever it is right they're afraid that, that that of being perceived as somebody abusive or somebody tyrannical and he says and now you have the society where that fear has been inverted and now in an unhealthy society you have the populace that's afraid of the government, not the other way around, but the ro- the rule of law is very much an institution that, that depends on fear, and it's up to us, I think, to exercise, you know, our right of free ex- free speech and free assembly, to hold these people's feet to the fire and use the fear to our advantage, because that's a big part of the rule of law, whether you like it or not.
0: Right, Bob Moran has this new. I think I sent it to you. This new cartoon where this media machine is pouring out fear, fear, fear. And the people are reaching up and grabbing a life, a, a, you know, a, what is it called? A life. It's on the ship. Life, ra- you know, it's, lifeboat. it's, uh, yeah, lifeboat, but, but, and it says on it, slavery. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Li- okay. Right. Life preserver, life preserver. Sorry. It was a life preserver They're reaching up and yeah. grabbing the life preserver. Okay. Yeah. Two, two other points. Um, I just finished doing a long discussion about Bitcoin um, on Marcola's show. And one of the things that came out was the the young man I was talking with, you know, and a great enthusiast about Bitcoin was basically saying, look, most people are untrustworthy. Bitcoin creates a covenant. We can go off as a group and have a covenant. We don't need to worry about these other people. They're not going to you know they really can't make it in this environment and he didn't understand that if 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 the majority of the population is expendable then he and the bitcoin enthusiasts will not be free in other words you t- we talked about this last week on money and market it's kind of a zero one thing it's everybody or nothing right it's it's yeah. not going to work and he didn't he he couldn't understand that
1: yeah, well, in other words, if, if you have a situation and the level playing field is gone and some people are above the law, you're at their mercy whether you like it or not. Right. Yeah, you might try to convince yourself that that's not the case. That's the case. Right. If, they, if, if people, if certain group of people, whether it's bankers or whoever, is literally above the law, it's written into the Justice Department U.S. Attorney's Manual that banks, you know, their, their collateral consequences have to be considered so they have special dispensation. They're above the law. It It is open season on you whenever they want.
0: Right. Well, it's funny because my big issue in the 90s, you know, they were doing it in poor neighborhoods. And my big issue is if you look at a negative return on economy, if you let this go down, at some point they got to go after the middle class. They have to go after everybody. It's not, right. you know, it's a matter of time. Okay, so there's the last one thing I, I do want to say before we close. First of all, this has been absolutely fantastic. So, I didn't get to see it before we recorded. I got a hint of the outline, but I didn't get to see it. <laughs> and this is this is, you know, John, you never you never cease to just, you know, produce that wow in terms of defining and framing the issues. I'm big on frameworks, but I yeah. just have to say you're somebody when I first saw the first thing you did and became aware of your work during the financial crisis, I was like, wow, who is this guy? You know, and this is the ultimate lyric compliment. He really gets it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, well, thank you. I think it it boils boils to me, what I like about this is everything comes down, everything's simple. It's storytelling. Right. This stuff doesn't happen at random or out of the blue.
0: Right. Sovereignty is the whole framework upon which we stand. and and It's the ball of wax. Yep. 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 And and that's why, you know, people keep saying, what should I do with my money? And I keep saying, if there's no rule of law, it doesn't matter. All bets are off. All bets are off. Right. So you got to take some of your money and put it towards making sure there's a rule of law. But yeah. you know it's it's really funny. All my friends from Eastern European, Eastern Europe, they get you know they get it like that because they live right. through, you know, they live through all these horrible times in a world where sovereignty was being destroyed or taken. So they know anyway. But you, you absolutely uh, have done a fantastic job, and I can't thank you enough. And I can't wait to get this one out in hard copy. Well, Hopefully thank you.
1: If- the hard, I, as I said to you, this could be turned into a book. Yep. I do what I can, you know, but this has been a challenge to get in 90 minutes. But I'm really glad I had this opportunity because it forced me to look at these issues again, like, wow, and see things that I hadn't seen. And looking at them after 10 years, I'm seeing new things.
0: Well, so it was I a great, great experience. I don't, I don't want you to feel obligated, but if you'll write the book, we'll publish it. OK. OK. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us on the Soler Report.